Well, as your pastor, I just want to tell you that one of the things that I pray for fervently regularly, but most specifically as it comes to a culmination at this time of the year when we kind of highlight missions, is that there will be people, families, and without prejudice, I pray specifically for young people and young families to surrender their lives, to be willing to go and serve the Lord in a vocational, pastoral, missionary role. Uh, I say younger people, again, without prejudice, only because young people have more years in front of them to do that and that they can go through the proper preparation and get mobilized and then live a fruitful life of service. Now, anybody can do that, but uh, it is an exciting time because frequently at this time of the year, we have people that actually surrender. We have people that communicate with us and say, hey, I think God's working on my heart. I think God's leading me. I finally turned it all over to the Lord. Um, And that's an exciting thing. And we rejoice with them. We rejoice with their willingness, with their zeal, with their vision, with all these things. But before we would ever let anybody go to do that, before this church would ever actually send them, um, they would have to prove their doctrinal foundation. Uh, Listen, if a person is not a good steward of the truth of the teaching of the Scriptures, then what would any church that they would endeavor to start end up looking like? And so where we're at today is that we are finishing up a series that we began in the beginning of September on the subject of stewardship. And today we're going to be looking out of 1 Corinthians chapter 4. You may want to take your Bibles and get ready there. Let me just tell you as well that one of the big problems in missions today is the fact that there are far too many people out there who have not been prepared scripturally, doctrinally, sufficiently, and yet go out and attempt to begin new works. In other words, every aberrant, false doctrinal teaching has its representative in almost every country of the world. There are groups sending out people like crazy, and all they are doing is, not, is deceiving, or maybe an easier way to say it would be confusing, the populace of people who are hearing them. And so what we're going to look at today is doctrinal stewardship. Now, just very briefly, let me just remind you that when we began talking about stewardship in September, we kind of defined the idea of being an administration or an economy. We talked about how your stewardship is basically God owns everything. He has allowed you the privilege and the ability and the trust to manage his stuff for your lifetime. But he will indeed call us all into account for how we have managed it, what kind of a steward we have been of those things. And so then the weeks subsequently, we broke it down into how we need to be faithful stewards of the finances that he's trusted to us. We need to be faithful stewards of our schedules and the time that he has allotted to each and every one of us. We need to be faithful stewards of the gospel of Jesus Christ that he has entrusted to us to carry to the world. And today, We're going to finish this series talking about how we need to be faithful stewards of the doctrines and the teachings of the Bible. And we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and the first two verses say, Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Now, this stewardship is not given solely to the new missionary candidates that we want to train to go start new churches. Certainly, it's given to each and every one of us. It is given to the ministers of Christ, verse number one. So the question you should ask yourself if you want to know if this applies to you is, am I a minister of Christ? Or you may say, well, I'm not sure if I am. Do you want to be? Because each of us should be ministers of Christ if we have Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior. And so with that in mind, I want to remind you of 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 15, which says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, 2 Timothy is in a category of books called the pastoral epistles because Paul writes to Timothy, who's a young pastor. And so if you are studying to be a pastor, and one of the classes currently uh, being taught in our Living Faith Bible Institute is the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus. And so Second Timothy is certainly a pastoral epistle, but you cannot possibly think that verse 15 is written solely to pastors. Only pastors are the ones who have to study. That can't be what you would think that it would be. Of course, because if you went to verse number 14, the verse right before verse 15, Second Timothy, chapter 2, it says, Of these things put them, all the people, in remembrance 
charging them before the Lord that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. Then you have study to show thyself approved. So Timothy is to teach everybody that they need to know all these things. Verse 16, shun profane and vain babblings. They will increase unto more ungodliness. Because when you don't rightly divide the word of truth, when you don't rightly understand the context and the teaching of the Bible, then you are going to be involved in what is called profane and vain babbling. You don't really know what you're talking about, and it just causes more ungodliness. Like, we need any more of that anymore, right? I mean, we got plenty of that, don't we? Okay, so if any of us are not good stewards of the proper teaching of the Bible, according to 2 Timothy 2.15, we are not approved. Study to show thyself approved unto God. And the opposite of approved is ashamed. That's in your notes. The opposite of approved is ashamed. Because it says, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed. Because if you're not approved, you're going to be ashamed. And that all has to do with when we are called into account. Now, if you took the time, and we're not doing it today, but if you took the time to study the issue of shame in the Scriptures, What you will find that shame is frequently associated with in the scriptures is nakedness. It's associated with nakedness. All the way back from the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve, before sin entered, it says that they were naked and not ashamed. But once sin entered in, shame is associated with nakedness. And so the idea is this. Without letting your mind wander too far, really what what God's talking about is being exposed. Being exposed. In other words, when you stand before the Lord at the day of reckoning of your stewardship, the rapture of the church, if you have not studied to show yourself approved as a faithful steward of the doctrines of the Scripture, you will in that day, if not previous to that day, you will find yourself exposed. Exposed for the lazy, selfish, self-centered, uninterested Christian that maybe you are. There are other things that you'll be exposed of potentially. I mean, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, it talks about how sin will do that as well. And sin is the thing that'll keep you from working to be um, approved unto God, to study the word of God. 1 Timothy 5 ends with this, and this is not in your notes, but let me just read it to you. It says in verse 24, some men's sins are open beforehand, going before to judgment, and some men they follow after. See, the Bible says, be sure your sins will find you out. And the idea is this, is that whether it happens in this life, sometimes people blow it and it becomes exposed for everybody to see now. Other people blow it and seem to get away with it. But let me just promise you, as God promises us, you don't get away with it. There is coming a day of reckoning. And that day is the rapture of the church. And I know that when we sing the songs, and man, I was truly moved by the worship time and thinking about the day that we will be with the Lord and there will be no more tears and death and crying and everything will be glorious and all creation praises Him. Man, I can't wait for that day. But the truth of the matter is, if you haven't faithfully been serving the Lord, okay, so young people here in front of me, okay, so you get to the age now where your parents are going to start to trust you and they'll leave you at home alone for the first time, for example. And when they leave you at home alone for the first time, okay, they might say, okay, I want you to do this or this chore and get it done because we'll be back in a couple of hours. And then, you know, you don't do it. And, you know, you play Xbox and you're on your phones and you do whatever you do, but you're not doing it. Then all of a sudden your parents come home a little bit early and you're busted, okay? You're exposed for the fact that you didn't do it, right? So you're like, man, that's not a wonderful day. That's not a, you're not looking forward to your parents coming home at that moment if you haven't done what you were supposed to have done. But if you're faithful and have done a good job and got the work done right away, and then you're playing basketball in the driveway or whatever, then you're looking forward to mom and dad coming home because you can say, wow, look, I've done what you've asked me to do. And that's the picture that we have. That's the idea of the rapture of the church. That's what we're in front of. So with that in mind and the clear teaching of the Bible, I mean, why wouldn't everybody study the Bible like they're supposed to? Why wouldn't everybody just dive into this thing and enjoy it? Well, it says in 2 Timothy 2.15 that it takes work. Study to show thyself approved unto God a workman. And sometimes people just don't want to work. They're just not interested in putting in the time. But we're going to put in some time. So are you ready to work this morning?
We're going to do a little bit of work. Okay, let me just pray, and then we'll jump into our subject. Heavenly Father, as we come before you, we are here to do some work, and we are here to allow you to teach us. And I just pray, God, that as we see ourselves in the mirror of your word, that you would teach us the truth of your word, and we would understand clearly where we're at. And regardless of what we see, we may not love what we see today, but whatever it is, it's truthful, and it allows us to know how we can then stretch how we can then take the next step, how we can then do whatever it is we need to do to take that next step in the right direction towards you and to get things right. Lord, teach us about the vital importance of our stewardship and certainly our stewardship of the truth of your word. We're here to learn. We ask that you teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, there's, there's three things ultimately we're gonna look at in your notes. And the first one is to beware of false doctrine beware of false doctrine. Why is that so important? Well, it's important because false teaching of the scripture is the number one method of the devil to deceive and to damn people. I mean, from the very beginning in Genesis chapter three and verse number one, the devil shows up on the scene for the very first time as a serpent. And the first words out of the devil's mouth, yea, hath God said that you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And so the first thing the devil does is question the word of God. He ultimately changes the word of God. He ultimately wrongly interprets the word of God and to give Eve some false sense of security so that she will do the wrong thing. The devil is a liar. And that's his number one way of working. So from the very beginning of the revelation to the very end of the revelation, in Revelation chapter 16 and verse 13, in the time of the tribulation, we find this unholy trinity. One is, there's the dragon, the serpent, right? The dragon. Then we have the beast, which we typically refer to as the Antichrist. And there's another character called the false prophet. The false prophet. That means that there's somebody who's prophesying. He's speaking as though for God, but it's false. They're lies. And this is so important that we find that God over and over again warns us about false doctrine, about false teachers. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? So he says, beware You better beware because there's going to be people out there in sheep's clothing. In other words, they will look and act and talk as though they are sheep, true believers, true followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. They will pretend like they are Christians, but truly on the inside, they are the enemy of the Christian. They are a ravening wolf, the enemy, natural enemy of a sheep. They are there to destroy you. You have to beware of these people. How can we possibly know who they are? Well, you can know them by their fruits. You can know them because they never really produce solid biblical disciples that then go on and produce solid biblical disciples. You'll know them by their fruits. You don't go to a thorn bush and expect to get grapes. You don't go to a thistle, another thorn bush, and expect to draw figs. You don't go to a false teacher and expect to draw faithful disciples. Matthew 24, verse 11, and many false prophets shall rise. What do they do? They deceive many because that's what they do. And Jesus says, man, you gotta beware of that. Romans 16, verses 17 and 18. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses. What kind of divisions and offenses, Paul? Contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, And by good words and fair speeches, what do they do? Deceive the hearts of the simple. And so we know that they're going to look like Christians, and we know that they're going to talk like Christians, and they're going to be smooth talkers, and they're going to use fair speeches and good words and kind and pleasant and positive and encouraging and helpful. They're not going to often stand up and talk about sin. They're not often going to stand and talk about damnation and judgment. They're not going to talk about hell and unrighteousness and ungodliness. They're going to make you feel good. They generally have huge churches and make a lot of money. You have to beware of these people. They are contrary to the doctrine that you have learned. It says you should avoid them. Don't dabble with them. Don't watch their TV shows late at night. You have to avoid them. They don't serve the Lord Jesus. They serve themselves. 
$65 million jets. I mean, they do all kind of things. You have to beware of them. 2 Peter chapter 2. But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers, church, among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many, not few, many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. So the more people that follow these false teachers, the more evil is spoken of what is the truth. So we try and stand for truth in these last days, which the Bible calls perilous times. And the more we try and stand for truth, the more the rest of the world, Christian or otherwise, says, you're just a hater. You're just mean-spirited. You're the, you're the troublemaker. You're the one we have to watch out for. You see that happening around us? He says, beware of false doctrine. Beware of false teachers. And that's why in 1 John chapter 4, it says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God. Why? Because many false prophets are gone out into the world. They offer teaching, but it's false. It deceives people into thinking that they're okay. That's why it's the number one avenue for the devil to work. He gives a message that is not true and people believe it and think they're okay and never get right with God. God, on the other hand, has always given his word. He's always made his truth clear to man. He's never left us in the dark, right? John chapter 1, verse 1, right in the beginning was the word, right? And the word was with God, and the word was God. And you jump down to verse number 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ is the very living manifestation of the word of God. In John 14 and verse number six, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Jesus Christ is the very word of God. Jesus Christ is the very embodiment of what truth is. And in my humble opinion, the greatest, this is in your notes, the greatest single attribute of God is that he speaks. Now that may not be necessarily the greatest theological statement, but for me, as a sinner who desperately needs salvation, who desperately needs grace, who desperately needs help from the holy, eternal, immutable God and all the other attributes that he carries, the one thing that means the most to me is the fact that he speaks. Because if God didn't speak, friends, how in the world would you have any idea how things work? How would you know what God thinks? How would you know what's wrong with you? How would you know what you need to do to fix it? You wouldn't have a clue about what to do if God didn't say something to you. And because he said something to you, you can know. The devil knows it, and so he says things to you. And we are called to be good stewards of what God said to us. Yes, it's that important. Hebrews chapter 1, first two verses. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Notice, how has God always communicated? He spake in times past by the prophets, in our era by the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want you to know something. It goes even further than that because today the Scriptures, the Scriptures... The word script, it's written. The written word of God is called even more sure than the audible voice of God. Doesn't that sound crazy? I mean, I'm sure if you're like me, you've thought, wouldn't it have been cool to be able to walk around with Jesus? I mean, would it have been cool to have been one of the disciples and, you know, and, and touch him and sit with him and eat with him and all that stuff? I mean, it would have been cool for sure. But as far as truth is concerned in God's message, God tells us, what you have today in your hands in the Word of God and with the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you, it's better. It's, I mean, count, we should have some hallelujah. This is awesome. It's better. That's what he says. Second Peter chapter, do you don't have to believe me? Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Simon Peter, for we have not followed cunningly devised fables. Well, that would be some false teaching, by the way when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He said, we didn't, we didn't do that. 
But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And what he's referring to is back in Matthew chapter 17 when Peter, James, and John went with the Lord Jesus Christ onto the mountain and they were praying and they fell asleep and they wake up and they see Jesus transfigured and Moses and Elijah, you know, in their, in their glorified state on the mountain. And Peter is there and he sees the whole thing and he hears the audible voice of God. So let's pick it up in verse 17. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is the audible voice of God the Father giving his audible approval of God the Son. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the Holy Mount. Then he goes on and he says, We have also a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto you do well that you take heed as a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Well, what is that word of prophecy? Well, verse 20, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture, there you have it, is of any private interpretation. And so the more sure, how is it possible that the Bible is more sure, okay, I get it. A lot of people, you know, eat too much pizza and drink too much beer at night or whatever, and then they go to bed and then they have a vision and a dream and they think that they heard something from God, okay? I get that happens. (laughs) But how do I know? I mean, when Peter was there, it's undeniable. He was really hearing from the real God. How can anything be more sure than that? Well, let me just tell you. Because it is scripture, it's written Because it's written, it's objective. If it's just audible, you ever played that broken telephone game where you tell something, whisper in a guy's ear, and he whispers in the next guy's ear, and you go around the room, and it's an entirely different message by the time it gets back to you? See, that's subjective. I heard what I thought I heard, and I communicated the way I thought I heard it. But this way, if you forget, you just go back and look it up. It's ink on paper. It never changes. It's the same. And so it's objective. It's more sure. He's not saying what God said wasn't sure. It wasn't right. But we can go back and check on it. That's the reason. But if, you're, if that's going to be helpful to you, you need to study. And you, if you're going to study, that's going to take work. And if it's going to take work, it's going to take time. And if it's going to take, oh, wait a minute. So now we're talking about the stewardship of our time. Oh. Okay, so here's back to, let's get back to your notes. I'm going a little crazy. Okay. The Bible is the last, last is your blank, the last line of defense against attacks on God and the truth. Right? John chapter 17, verse 17, sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. I thought we just said Jesus is truth. Yes, we did. Now you're saying the word of God is truth. Yes, we are. Oh yeah, Jesus is called the word of God. I forgot. See how that all fits together? Listen. The only thing that needs to matter, whether anything is true or not, is whether the Bible says it's true. The Bible is the last line of defense against all attacks on the truth. It's not First Baptist Church. It's not me. It's not you. It's not your opinion. It's not your friend. It's not your favorite TV preacher. It's, not, it's certainly not Fox News. It, th- these things are not the last line of defense about what is ultimately true. The Bible and the Bible alone is the last line of defense. It's not your favorite Christian author. It's not the best commentary you've ever read on the Bible. It is the Word of God. That is it. So you must study to show yourself approved so that you can rightly divide the Word of truth. John chapter 8, 31 and 32. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue... Well, that sounds like it's going to take time. Yes, it's work. If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. You know how many people could quote that verse and really don't get it? Because if you don't take the time to truly exercise your stewardship in doctrinal matters, this verse says that You're not really free. You're in bondage. Because the only thing that you've got to follow, if you don't have the scriptures to follow, are your thoughts. They're your feelings. They're your ideas. They're your reasonings. And that's trouble. Because 
The Bible says our hearts are desperately wicked, and we can't even know them. The Bible says that our ways and our thoughts, they're not God's ways and God's thoughts. His ways and his thoughts are infinitely higher than our ways and our thoughts. The Bible says that we need to take the mind of Christ and so saturate our mind with his mind that our life reflects what the head of the body tells us to do. But if we don't do that, we're stuck. We're in bondage to what we think and what our friends think and what society thinks, and that's never enough. In Revelation chapter 2, God rebuked the Ephesian church because they left their first love. And he praised the Philadelphian church in Revelation 3.8 because they kept his word. They kept his word. So the stewardship of the word of God has been committed to us, church, and we will be called into account for it. It's critically important for you personally and for any disciple that you ever make, any ongoing ministry that you intend to participate in, that you take seriously your stewardship of the Bible doctrines. And the way that you're going to do that is our second point, to be informed of the mysteries. To be informed of the mysteries. Because back in 1 Corinthians 4, let a man so account of us, and it says, as stewards of the mysteries of God. So we're going to talk about that. Be informed of the mysteries, not so that you can just pridefully boast to your Christian friends that you know mysterious things, as cool as that might be. But we've said this before, I'm going to prove it for you now. The biblical definition of a ministry comes from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 3 to 5. How that by revelation, Paul said, he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages, what, what are you talking about? The mystery. In other ages was not made known unto the sons of man, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So a mystery doesn't mean something so mysterious that it's very hard to figure out. A Bible mystery just means that at some point in the past, God never revealed it. It might have appeared in a veiled form in pictures and types and similitudes. But now in the New Testament, he has fully pulled the curtains back and he shined the bright light of truth on it and he said, here it is, this is what I was talking about. Now it's revealed. And there are seven distinct mysteries in the New Testament for the church, and you have them listed in your notes. We are going to do a very brief overview of those right now because we will study those in detail in other places and other times, okay? But just so that you are aware, because if, think about it this way, you will absolutely 100%, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, be called into account for your stewardship. Amen? We've seen that over and over again. And you'll be called into account for your stewardship in all these different areas. And most certainly one of the areas is to be stewards of the mysteries of God. How embarrassing would it be if God says, okay, you were to be a steward of my mysteries. How did you do? And if you said, I don't even know what mysteries are. That would be embarrassing, right? So I'm really glad you came here today. Now you'll know what they are. Okay, and then you can study them more on your own. So the first one, the rebirth of Israel. By the way, these are in no particular order. Okay, I took them, I wrote them in order that they appear in the books of the Bible in order of the Bible. Okay, so the rebirth of Israel, Romans eleven twenty five. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery. How do I know where the mysteries are? Well, it's real easy. They all have the word mystery in them. <laughs> and if you study the Greek, they all have the word mystery in them. It's really easy. The English translators really helped you out. Okay, so, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part, here it is, blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. So the idea is, is that the literal political nation of Israel will absolutely have a comeback. That's a mystery. For a long, you know, for 19 centuries, they weren't a, they weren't a nation. And now we're living in a time where we already know they are, and you're like, well, duh. Okay, so the idea is, is that not everybody understands that. And they certainly don't understand that they're going to come back as God's people to end and fulfill the plan that God began with them, starting all the way back with Abraham. 
Well, why is that so important? I'm not here to teach that mystery today. Why is that so important to me in my doctrinal understanding of the Bible? Because the understanding of the mysteries gives me the understanding of the key doctrines that'll keep you from being deceived and, in the worst case scenario, damned. Because there's a lot of people out there, false teachers, talking about something called spiritual Israelism. And they want to claim all the physical promises that were given to Israel for themselves. So all the health, wealth, and prosperity guys, they're basically stealing Israel's promises. All the signs and wonders and miracles guys, they are basically stealing those things because 1 Corinthians one twenty one says that signs are for the Jews. And so anybody that's trying to steal stuff from Israel and they do it on the basis that God is done with Israel doesn't understand the mystery of the rebirth of Israel. And so anybody who's trying to set up their own kingdom, anybody who's trying to take over Jerusalem, anybody who's trying to say that Israel matters not anymore, which is like every nation on the planet except the United States of America for now, any religion that would say that doesn't matter and we're taken over, and that would be the Catholics or the Charismatics. There's a group called the Worldwide Church of God, Garner Ted Armstrong. Listen, these guys are British Israelites. These are guys that are saying we are in charge. It is, we are the new Israel. The spiritual Israel is all that matters. Literal Israel doesn't matter. You don't understand the mysteries, and you can get messed up in that stuff. The next one, the rapture of the church. That's a mystery. Well, I've known about that. Well, you live in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it was a mystery. 1 Corinthians 15, 51. Behold, I show you a mystery. Well, there it is. Ding, ding. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead, in Christ, or the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. So that's what we've talked about. It's the day of reckoning of our stewardship. It also points out that the church is distinct from Israel. It points out that the church will not go through the time of tribulation because the time of tribulation is called Jacob's time of trouble. Who's Jacob? He's the guy whose name became Israel. Oh yeah, and Israel's coming back. The church has nothing to do with that. If you don't understand the mystery of the rebirth of Israel, if you don't understand the mystery of the rapture of the church, you cannot possibly, you will for sure get confused and think, the church is going through the tribulation. How many of your friends go to other churches and think the church is going through the tribulation? They're just not good stewards of the mysteries. They're nice people. They just haven't taken the time. The third one, the body of Christ. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 30. Now, you know, this is the story that comes on the heels of the whole husband and wife thing, and wives submit to your husbands as the church to Christ, and husbands love your wives as Christ does the church. And he goes on in verse 30 in Ephesians 5, we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. You could go back to our intro of what a mystery is, that it wasn't before revealed in Ephesians 3, and I gave you Ephesians 3, 4, and 5. Well, it goes on in Ephesians 3, 6, and it says that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs, and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. So you take Ephesians 3 and you take Ephesians 5 and those two together become the mystery of the body of Christ. That the Jews and the Gentiles all become together in one new organism, the church. And it, what it really teaches us is the critical importance of unity among believers and how God hates the divisions that would have come from the prejudices of, for example, the Jews and the Gentiles. And so God wants us to be united, that there is no race, racism or cultural or national superiority. You know what else it does? It teaches us that because spiritually we are all one, although physically we are very diverse as people, that our mission is spiritual. Our kingdom for today is only spiritual. That means that there should be no political agenda for the church today. And you can get all twisted about which political party. At the end of the day, it's the Jesus party. That's all that matters. That's the party I'm in. I'm not, I mean, listen, the Bible says I am a citizen of heaven, that I am an ambassador in a foreign land, planet earth. I am his representative here. That's all that matters. 
And if you get too caught up in that other stuff, it's because you're not a good steward of the mysteries. Fourth mystery, the indwelling Christ, Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery. Isn't this hard? Among the Gentiles, which is, here it is, Christ in you, the hope of glory. We say that we receive Jesus Christ. He comes and lives inside our bodies. Now, I don't know about you. When I first kind of was, when I was a young believer in my early 20s and I, and I first got that, I mean, you know, I, I'm a thinker. I sit around and think about stuff. And I'm like, that's kind of weird. He's inside of me. You know, I don't know exactly how that works, but okay, so then, you know, you learn and, you know, the Holy Spirit of God is fully God and he's the person of the Trinity. Okay, so that whole idea is a mystery that did not previously, it was not previously revealed in the Old Testament. The idea is this. Going back to the idea how cool it would have been to walk around Jesus, God in you is better than God with you. God in you is better than God with you. How easy is that, right? You know what that means? That when I got saved, the Holy Spirit of God took up residence in my body and I got it all, man. I got it all. You know what that means? You know what you know will mess you up if you don't understand that? There's no second blessing. There's no getting saved one day and some point later finally surrendering and getting filled with the Holy Ghost, which is evidenced by signs and wonders and speaking in tongues and all that kind of stuff. People that get into that stuff, listen, they're nice people. They don't understand the mysteries. Their doctrine's all messed up. You got to understand the mysteries because it'll protect your doctrine. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the incarnation of the devil. What? Verse 7, for the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. This mystery of iniquity is something of the continual generational working of the spirit of Antichrist working in the world today until ultimately it is fulfilled in the tribulation time with the literal person that is referred to as the Antichrist. It will be Satan incarnate and his reign over all the nations in the last days. If you took the time to study this out, you will find that one of the things associated with the Antichrist and his incarnation is that the devil will have lying signs and wonders. So God is not the only one pulling off miracles. Other people can pull off miracles, and you better beware of false teaching and false doctrine lest you stumble and fall. The sixth one, the incarnation of Christ. This should be something we're well familiar with, 1 Timothy 3.16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. This is a great mystery. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. It's no new thing for probably most of you that this is referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God Yet he's man. But listen, there are tons of false teachers out there that don't buy that. Uh, talk to a Jehovah's Witness this next time they try and give you a free magazine at your front door. See if they're buying the fact that God was manifest in the flesh and that was seen of angels and preached unto the Gentiles and all that. And you say, well, who in the world would I? Let's see, if that really happened, who would that have been? Well, it had to have been Jesus. He's the only one possibly that could fulfill all those things. Talk to a Muslim someday about that. See what they think. Um, not if there's a bunch of them with knives, but talk to them. <laughs> I mean, I'm serious. I mean, there's people that just don't buy that. Talk to a Mormon. See what they got to say. Jesus is the brother of Satan. I'm Lucifer. You know, I mean, it's crazy. They don't believe this stuff. The incarnation of Christ, meaning that God Almighty took on flesh. It's Christmas. I don't believe in Christmas. It's the dual nature of Jesus' earthly life. 100% God, 100% man. And so all of them, the Jehovah's Witness, the Mormons, Buddhists, I mean, it, Hindus, it doesn't matter. Anybody that doesn't agree and understand that Jesus Christ is God Almighty, they don't understand the mysteries. And the last one we have is the religion of the Antichrist, Revelation chapter 17, verse 5. 
And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. What this is is a religious system that will be the vehicle that the Antichrist will use to usher in his false kingdom before the ultimate second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a religious system that stems all the way back from ancient Babylon. And it has certain things that are described in Revelation, and it has things that the history of Babylon's mystery religions would have always had. It would have multiple deities or saints. It would have the mother of God. It will have a miracle birth. It will have icons and statues used to aid in worship. It will have weekly observances of the drinking of the blood and eating of the flesh to sacrifice to God. There is a religion that will usher in the mystery of iniquity and the ultimate incarnation of the devil. And that religion is not Islam. It's not Islam. We have to study these things. And by the way, we do offer classes to help you understand these things. And these classes are offered through our discipleship. We offer these things in the 9 a.m. training hour. If you're not taking part in that, uh, maybe that's a reason why you haven't really figured it out yet. But listen, you can absolutely know these things. You can. It's not that hard. What did we do? We searched for mystery and we started to study them. That's all we did. And the more you study them, the better you'll understand them. And, and if you don't understand them, then let me just encourage you to show up a little more often because we can help you. We really can. That's why we're doing that. And if you do that, what, you know what will happen? It's not just, hey, I know mysterious things. No, these truths will change your life. They will change the way you see the world. They will keep you from being deceived. They will keep you from being distracted by following things that you don't need to be following while the real thing is going on over here. The mysteries keep you straight, which hopefully by now helps you to see your need to do what our third point of study is, be trained for the ministry. Be trained for the ministry. Again, at a time like a missions conference, we always get people who come and say, wow, I, I think God might be calling me. I, I, think that, I think I'd like to put my hat in the ring. I'd like to consider being a missionary. My family is willing to go wherever God might send us. And I'm, I'm telling you, I rejoice every time anybody ever says, man, I'm willing to be a part. That is a huge first step. But let me just tell you something. If that's your desire, you absolutely have a need to be trained. You can't just run off without knowing what you're doing. I mean, it's that important. We stand up here week after week and we plead with you to get involved in what we call the path for growth. And I'm not going to do it, and I don't want to embarrass anybody, but if I asked you, what is, if you've been coming for any length of time, if you're new, God bless you for being here. I'm not talking to you right now. But for you that come here all the time, if I said, what is the path for growth? Jot it down on your notes. Don't let anybody look. Do you know what it is? And if you can't do that, then I'm here to help you, okay? But you'll be embarrassed when you walk out the door and glance to the left wall because in massive red circles, we have it posted for you. And, and it is... Step one, attend. Step two, learn. Step three, engage. Step four, lead. What does that mean? We'll talk to us. We'll help you understand what that means. Why do we stand up here and pound the pulpit and say, please, please, please get involved and do that because I get a raise if you do. No. Because I want to be able to go to pastor's conferences and tell them how many people are on the path. I don't even, I don't even know if they have, I don't go to pastor's conferences. I don't, that's not it. It's because God's truth, rightly understood and therefore rightly applied, is good for you. It's like bacon. It's good for you. (laughs) I mean, it's almost a vegetable. It's just awesome. Okay, so... I don't know why I said that. Deuteronomy (laughs) chapter 4 Okay, if you're laughing too much, we've got to go to the law. I mean, Moses. Okay, so Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 40. Listen to this. This is awesome. Thou shalt keep therefore his statutes and his commandments, which I command thee this day. Why? That it may go well with thee and with thy children after thee, and thou mayest prolong thy days upon the earth, which the Lord thy God giveth thee forever. Why did God give you the Bible? Why did God tell you what he had to tell you? To ruin your fun, 
to see if you're going to be pious enough to memorize enough scriptures. And Man, no, it's for your good. It's to help you. And it breaks a pastor's heart when people just cast aside good things that will help them because they're busy doing things that really don't matter. And so Deuteronomy 440 is not the only place that that shows up. I mean, glance over, if you have your Bibles there, and I know a lot of you guys look at the screen, but they probably won't be on the screen, but I'm just going to give you a, it says it over and over and over again. So chapter 5 and verse 16 Honor thy father and mother as the Lord thy God hath commanded thee. Why? That thy days may be prolonged and that it may go well with thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Why should kids obey and honor their parents? Well, because it's good for you to do that. Verse number 29 of the same chapter. Oh, that there were such an heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always that it might be well with them and with their children forever. Down to verse 33, you shall walk in all the ways with the Lord, which the Lord your God hath commanded you that ye may live and that it may be well with you and that ye may prolong your days in the land which ye shall possess. Chapter 6 and verse number 3, Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe to do it that it may be well with thee and that you may increase mightily as the Lord God of thy fathers has promised thee in the land that floweth with milk and honey. Verse number 18, And that thou shalt do that which is right and good in the sight of the Lord that it may be well with thee and that thou mayest go in and possess the good land which the Lord swear unto thy fathers. Verse number 24, And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes and to fear the Lord our God for our good always that he might preserve us alive as it is at this day. Do I need to keep going on? Have you ever noticed that when you read through Deuteronomy? I mean, these are God's last instructions through Moses before they're about to enter into the promised land, which, by the way, is a picture of victorious Christian living. So we could therefore conclude, and this is back to your notes again, to be a good steward of God's truth, you must prepare yourself. You must prepare yourself. We started this series referencing Luke chapter 12 and verse 42, and there's a great question that's asked. And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household to give them their portion of meat in due season? That's a great question. That's a question we should all ask ourselves. Yeah, who then is that guy who is going to be considered a faithful and a wise steward? Well, if you jump down to verse 47, there's one thing that's very clear. He says, and that servant, which knew his Lord's will, and if you've been here, now we are without excuse. We know his will. And prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. In other words, he'll be ashamed. He'll be ashamed. You know what God wants for you. You know what God's calling you to do. You know what you think you'd like to do for the Lord. You desire more. That's awesome. You know that and don't prepare yourself. As we say where I grew up, you ought to be whipped. (laughs) I know that doesn't sound too good. But Jesus says, okay, the guy who had no clue, he'll be punished if he didn't do it too, but not so much as the guy who had a clue and didn't do it. It's a serious deal. And it's important because leaders cannot possibly, we can't be a leader if you're a novice. 1 Timothy 3, 6, and the qualifications of a pastor, not a novice, lest being up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 21, if a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, prepared unto every good work. You want to be a leader in ministry? You want to lead other men? You want to lead ministries and start new things? That's awesome. Please do that. Let's go do this together. You have to prepare yourself, and you have to be prepared to do every good work, not just one or two good works. And that's why in 2 Timothy chapter 3, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, right? That the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto every, all good works. Back to your notes. Preparation provides opportunities for proving. Because while you're going through the process of preparation, you are proving what you're made of. You're learning. 
So 1 Timothy 3, now in verse 10, and let these also first be proved. Then let them use the office of a deacon, being found blameless. 1 Thessalonians 5, 21, prove all things. Hold fast to that, which makes it through the test. Put all things to the test. The things that make it are the things you hang on to. You apply that in everything in your life. That's just good advice, but certainly in this case. So everybody's not going to prove out. Everybody's not going to prove out as being prepared. Because we know that from the Scriptures, and this is back to your notes, there are three levels of Christian commitment. You see this throughout the Bible. Revelation chapter 17 and verse number 14. There are three categories of people in Revelation 17 and verse 14. It calls the called and the chosen and the faithful. Can we get Revelation 17 up there? Yeah, here they are. And they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. Don't you realize that you can be called and yet not chosen? Maybe you're disqualified. Maybe you've done something, you're walking around with sin in your life. Maybe you've, call, you've been called and you've been chosen, but you're not faithful in the things that you do because that is a higher level. So you have three categories. You have the called, you have the chosen, and you have the faithful. For example, in the time of Jesus and the apostles, we have the apostles, but of the 12 apostles, they were all called to be apostles. But then Jesus chose three men, Peter, James, and John, to be with him in some areas where the others were not with him. But the only one that was faithful enough to go all the way to the cross was John. Only John was the faithful, to the very end anyway. You go to the story of the vine and the branches in John chapter 15, and what you have is Jesus says every branch that brings forth fruit, so there's people that bring forth fruit, he prunes them so they bring forth more fruit, and he keeps doing that process so that ultimately we bring forth much fruit. So there's fruit, more fruit, and much fruit. And in relation to our relationship with God, there are three ways that we can be referred to. There are those who are just considered like slaves or servants. And a servant, why does a servant do what they do, what they're told to do? Because it's generally out of fear. If you don't do it or else, I'm going to punish you. And so a servant serves from fear. Well, a level beyond that is a person who doesn't necessarily serve from fear. The Bible would call that person a hireling. A hireling serves for the rewards. Well, I'm going to do it because there's a payday coming. So if your motivation is not just, I fear God's going to kill me if I don't, you've moved up a little bit to say, well, it's not because, I'm not, I'm not afraid, but, I mean, show me the money. I mean, come on, we're going to, you know, I want some rewards for what I'm doing here, which is better, but it's not the level of a son because the son just serves out of love. You don't have to reward me, and I'm not afraid of you. I just love you, and I just want to do it. And there's a clear progression. So let me just clue you in. Our vision here, my vision here at First Baptist Church is to prepare and send multiple proven leaders to begin new churches all over the world. That's my desire. That, that's why I am up late at night. That's why I'm involved in training of these guys and our ministry tools and training and our Living Faith Bible Institute. That's why we're preparing new materials. That's why we spend time with these guys. It takes a lot of time. There's a lot of churches that don't do this and their pastors are way happier. <laughs> I'm just telling you. <laughs> they're not killing themselves, man, doing the stuff we're doing. But they're probably also not preparing and sending multiple proven leaders to begin new churches all over the world because a call to go is a call to preparation. And we have our path for growth, and we have the Living Faith Bible Institute as the final step, and, and it is available to anybody who's just willing to do the work and count the cost and just get involved. But please understand that if we don't have this path and if we don't have this Bible training available, First Baptist Church, it'll just be a pipe dream. We're never really going to prepare people, and we're never really going to get them to the point where they're ready for biblical ordination, and we're never really going to send out from our church body into new places, new missionaries, and new churches to be started. We're never really going to do it. We can be a nice community church, and we can give a lot of money so that other people do it. But I think we're better than that. I think that God can use us in better ways than that. And I know that there's people in this church that want more, more than that, not just for this church, but for themselves. 
And so can I just encourage you as your pastor, can I just help you to see that, man, we've got to do this. I mean, let me just ask you a couple of questions. We'll do this quick. Maybe I shouldn't have you respond to this because, you know, I'm I'm a little conflicted. Is being a pastor an important job? (laughs) Thank you. Okay, so (laughs) it's an important job. Here's the real question. Is it more significant or less significant than other career choices? So, obviously, when you consider eternal effect, it's, it's certainly much more significant to do eternal things than temporal things. It's not a slam on anybody's honest wage. I'm just saying this is a very important, very significant position that some people will be called to do. And so the next question, it's rhetorical really, is being a pastor an easy or a hard job? Well, if you care, it's a very hard job. If you don't care, it's a, it's a breeze. You only work on Sunday. <laughs> okay, so what if you, that was a joke, by the way. You got that. <laughs> I mean, somebody's listening on tape in their car, and they're like, I don't know if he's joking. Okay. Okay, so doing this job is particularly difficult. Can I just say that doing it cross-culturally is extremely more difficult to learn a language and a culture and a thought process of people you know nothing about and to then apply all of these things with people that you didn't grow up with? I I would argue that being a cross-cultural missionary pastor is, is arguably one of the most difficult jobs that a person can do in the world. So, if that's the case, and I think it is, should any serious missionary or pastor candidate who desires to have this career, which, by the way, 1 Timothy 3, right, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. If, any, if anybody's serious about doing this, should that person, knowing the difficulty of the job, receive more training or less training than other disciplines that you have studied in your careers? Well, I think the obvious answer is they should receive more training. It's hard work. The people that are involved in LFBI, Ask them. They give up all Saturday morning and there's books to be read and reports to be written and a test to be taken. And, and this is all after you complete the MTT level. I mean, these guys are working and they're working while they're also working another job and they're doing it because it matters and it's that important. And if we agree with all these things, listen, shouldn't a serious church promote and provide such educational training? And shouldn't the entire church stand behind and support all of those guys that are sacrificing to receive such training? And shouldn't we rejoice with those as they complete it and when we lay hands on them and we send them out? And I know that there will be weeping mamas and grandmamas, you know, for their kids and their grandkids, I know. But can't we rejoice that we're doing exactly what God said that we should do? And whether or not you find yourself ever showing up on a Saturday morning to an LFBI class or not, we can support this. We can get behind this. We can pray for this. We can rejoice in this because it's that important. It's a part of our stewardship. Okay, so let me wrap this up. It's it's time to quit. We started at the very beginning and we talked about how the word stewardship is also translated as dispensation. It's our administration of God's grace and plan for the world. It's, it's how God dispenses his plan to man throughout different times. And let me just remind you that in March of this year, and we actually have the exact dates, March 13th through the 16th, we'll once again have our certainty conference here. And the subject of study for that week will be dispensations. And we're going to look in detail at all of the ways that God dispensed out okay, his plan to man throughout the ages. We are in a particular dispensation. It is called the age of the church. And the end of this dispensation is marked by a cataclysmic event called the rapture of the church where our stewardship is going to be called into account. And most certainly, we all desire to hear God say to us at that day, well done, thou good and faithful steward. And that means that we need to be faithful today in the stewardship of our finances, in the stewardship of our time, in our stewardship of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and in our stewardship of the study of the doctrines 
of the Word of God. The good news for you guys is that we offer all of that to you if you will just get involved in our path for growth. All of that is wrapped up. All of that is part and parcel on the path. So if you will just come and grow with us, make a difference while there's still time. Listen, y'all, watch Fox News. See what's going on in the Middle East. See what's happening. The clock is ticking. We don't know how much time we've got. I don't know, and neither do you. It might be very, very soon. It might be a ways off. We don't really know. The point is this. It could be sooner than you think. You don't want to be the steward who knew his Lord's will and didn't prepare himself. You also don't want to be the young, enthusiastic steward who says, we don't have time. I don't have time for training. I want to get out there and get her done. No, the Lord will come back when the Lord comes back. The clock belongs to him. And if he called you to go, he called you to prepare. And the most important thing you can do on the planet is have him find you preparing. Because at the end of the day, the Lord is the Lord of the harvest, not us. He's in charge of how the word gets out to the world. We're just here to be a part of it. Listen, I'm done. We're going to pray. You have connection cards. Please use them to communicate to us whatever it is you think God's doing in your heart and whatever it will take for you to stretch and take that next step. Maybe you just need to begin to be faithful being a part of a midweek life group. Maybe you need to follow the Lord in believer's baptism. Maybe you need to begin to give financially to the ministry of this church and your tithes. Maybe you are ready to give your faith, promise, missions, commitment card in that. Maybe you need to start putting aside other things and start ministering to others more frequently with the gospel and, and, and taking assessment of your time and your schedule. Whatever that thing is, that's what I want you to consider doing. Let's pray together.